In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello and welcome to episode 29 of Scottish Blethers. A beautiful day here in Scotland, spring-like, daffodils budding and blooming all over the place. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And this being the first episode of the month, it's one of these freewheeling best of my favourites. So this week we're going to be discussing Scotland's gardens. And they're particularly attractive at this time of year and you're spoilt for choice. There's so many to have a look at. Limited at the moment because of COVID times, but we just had the news this week that Scotland's most popular visitor attraction in 2020 were the Edinburgh Royal Botanic Gardens, or the Botanics, as they're known to the locals. Very popular to walk through this beautiful area on the outskirts of the city of Edinburgh. Like most of our botanic gardens, they started as a garden to grow medicinal plants. And Edinburgh's is the second oldest botanic gardens after Oxford's. So it's really had a chance to establish itself. Beautiful visit. Really do advise it, as others have done this year, to make the most of it. And my highlight in it is the Queen Mother's Memorial Garden. Do you like it, Helen? Oh, it's absolutely stunning. And it's just a joy to be in, isn't it? It is. I mean, it's a very special tribute. Um, Queen Mother was, was 102 when she died. Yeah. And they established this garden because she loved her gardening. So in July 2006, the royal family turned out in force because it was it was the Queen, the Duke of Edinburgh, and the Duke and Duchess of Rossi, Charles and Camilla, they all turned up. And it's designed to reflect the life of the Queen. In the centre, it's got a labyrinth of bog myrtle and a Celtic knot, which is based on her childhood home at Glam's Castle. And then four areas in the four corners that represent the four geographical areas of the world where she travelled extensively. But the bit I like best is the little pavilion, which, like the path and the wall, is made from Caithness stone. And all along the wall, you've got inscriptions from all of the organisations that she was patron of. So it's really beautiful. It's very personal. It's lovely. And that little pavilion you're talking about is just beautiful. And that's got all the, the shells and the fir cones, hasn't it? The pine cones in it. That's right. The shells and pebbles were collected by school children from across Scotland. And the pine cones were collected from the three botanic gardens across Scotland. So it is. It's lovely. Just a little place to sit and quietly reflect. It's lovely. 
I was just thinking, Liz, that when you're on the Queen Mother's Garden, that some of our listeners have probably watched The Crown and they can see in that her Castle of May and how much she was involved in the restoration of the castle and the gardens on her own home on the very north of Scotland. Absolutely. And it takes some patience to get things to grow up there on the north coast of Scotland. But just before we leave the botanics, there's one thing that always sticks in my mind. The first rhubarb ever grown in Britain was grown here in 1786. And it was grown for medicinal purposes. That's what the the gardens were established for. And of course, it's used as a purge. And it was previously a very expensive import, but they planted 3,000 plants of rhubarb at the Botanic Gardens in Edinburgh. So a little known fact. Yeah, I mean, I love that. And that's why so many of the gardens in Scotland today have rhubarb plants in them. Just a legacy from those days. Yep. And the other botanic gardens in Scotland, big ones in Glasgow that are famous for the Kibble Palace, which is a glass house, wrought iron and glass, designed, first of all, by John Kibble for his conservatory on his home at Coalport on Loch Long. So well worth seeing. It was used as a concert hall and events venue when it was first opened in 1873. And we've also got a beautiful botanic garden in Inverness. It's a little gem. You've really got to search it out, but well worth the effort. And it's got a special garden called the Secret Garden, which is run by adults with special needs. And it's called GROW, which stands for Garden, Recycle, Organic and Wildlife. It's a beautiful little haven. That's lovely. And if you've got family, the one I would recommend is St Andrew's Botanic Garden because they do lots of family trails and uh, it's got a natural play area. In summer, they did a gruffalo hunt. And uh, in spring, you've got to search for signs of spring around the garden and draw a picture of each thing that you see or hear or smell that's related to spring. So good place to take the kids if you're looking. And of course, there's also a butterfly house there as well. So those are the botanic gardens with their roots in medicinal and botanical classes. That's so interesting. And I think that we're so fortunate in Scotland to have so many beautiful gardens and botanics as botanical gardens are one. But we've also got some lovely smaller gardens that are really little gems that really need to be opened out to the world. And the one I was going to to tell you about, Liz, I don't know if you've been there, to the Japanese garden at Cowden Castle, which is just near Dollar, outside Stirling. I've never been... I mean, as you know, Dollar's just along the road from us, Helen. But I kept on hearing people talking about the Japanese garden and I've just never been. Well, it's actually fascinating because it's been there for a long time. It was closed for quite a bit of the time after some vandalism in the 1960s. But it was created by an Ella Christie who was... Now, she died in 1949, so at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, she was travelling all over the world, the first Western lady to meet the Dalai Lama. And she travelled to India, Kashmir, Tibet, Malaya, Borneo, and just think what travelling would be like in those times. And it was during a trip to China and Japan in the early 1900s that she became inspired to create her Japanese garden at Cowden Castle when she got home. But what she did was she didn't just say, oh, that's a good idea. I'll try that myself. She actually brought and employed Taki Handa to fulfill her dream. And she was a gifted female designer, Japanese designer, who had been studying in Japan. But at this time, she was studying in England. So she came and she really was the first woman to design a garden of the size and scale 
of a Japanese garden anywhere. And she was just fantastic. And the garden is called A Place of Pleasure and Delight. And when you go there, Liz, it's absolutely stunning. We went in the pouring rain, the bucketing rain. We were just absolutely, to quote a word, drook it as we walked around. But the garden itself, even in the rain, was just stunning. It's got the lake, it's got the pathways, it's got the quiet bits, it's got the little pagoda statues. It is just stunning. And the colours with all the, is it the acers, the maple trees, the Japanese ones, are just beautiful. It's now, as I say, it was closed for some time, still still in the hands of the of the family, although it's in a trust now. But they, in 2013, they brought in Professor Fukuhara from Osaka University of Arts, and he has been restoring the garden. He's probably best known for winning gold medals at the Chelsea Flower Show, the famous flower show in London, and for the restoration of the Japanese gardens at Kew and for Tatton Park in Cheshire. Now, these are big, big places. And for a Cowden Castle just down the road from us, Liz, to have somebody of his stature restoring the gardens gives you an idea of how beautiful and wonderful they are. Absolutely. And, you know, to be a woman in a man's world, because plant hunting was at its height in the 18th and 19th century, there was about 120 Scottish plant hunters. And they were really Indiana Jones of their time, because they were fighting pirates and hostile natives, disease, wild animals, and going travelling all over the world to bring back these specimens, largely funded by wealthy landowners who wanted to have exotic gardens round about their houses. And we'll follow up with some of those in a moment or two. But in Pitlochry, there's actually what's called the Plant Hunter's Garden or the Explorer's Garden that celebrates the achievements of just some of them, 14 out of what they think was about 120 plant hunters at that time. And the contribution that they made to our gardens today, we don't think about it, but things like rhododendrons, these were brought back largely from China, a man called George Forrest. But perhaps you mentioned there Professor Hooker from Kew Gardens in London, probably the most famous of the gardens in the British Isles. And Professor Hooker, there was a great friendship with a man called David Douglas, who was born close to Perth and who worked as a gardener at Schoon Palace, which Susan's talked about before on one of our episodes. And David Douglas went all over the world and he brought back seeds which gave rise to the Douglas fir, named after him, which is famous across the world, but was brought to Scotland by David Douglas. And you can still see in Schoon Palace Gardens the Douglas fir, which is said to be the tree that grown from one of the seeds that David Douglas sent over. It's a very old, poor-looking specimen at the moment. It's well propped up with its crutches and everything, but it's still living and it's still there. And that brings to mind the parent larch from the planting Dukes of Athol at Blair Castle. You know, he became obsessed with larch trees and was even firing the seeds out of cannons. I I love that story. (laughs) Yeah, we're digressing from gardens, though. So many gardens. So some of the big houses, Helen, what are your favourites? Well, I just love when you go up to Dunrobin, for example, Dunrobin up on the northeast coast of Scotland, you stand well high above the gardens on the terrace and you look down on these beautiful formal gardens and then beyond them you're out to the sea, the North Sea. It is just a fantastic thing. And when you look at some of the formal gardens from on high, you can see the patterns 
the wonderful pathways and beautifully clipped hedges that give these lovely now this is a word for it isn't there these these gardens parterre parterre gardens that's the ones yes and I do love Dunrobin Castle. And of course, if you're up there looking over the gardens, if you just take your eye between the gardens and the North Sea, you might be lucky to see the falconer flying his falcons. That's right. Yes, that's another attraction at Dunrobin. But this was an, a time, the 18th and 19th century, a time of extreme wealth. And the Duke of Sutherland at Dunrobin Castle is a good example of that. So they had money to be able to employ these people to bring something back that was going to impress their friends and visitors. And they've left behind a legacy of the, the most beautiful gardens. Another one is Codder Castle. And this is a work of love. The Dowager Countess of Codder, Angelica, is absolutely passionate about gardening and about diversity and about bumblebees. She does bumblebee hunts. And so when you go there, no matter what time of year, there's the three gardens there, the formal gardens, the wild gardens, and then you've got the maze, which is a hollybush maze. But unfortunately, its roots were getting so eroded that only children can go in these days. But what I like in Codder especially is the Paradise Garden, that beautiful white, green and white garden, which is the real love centre of Codder, isn't it? It is. And she's a great lover of art. As you're wandering through the gardens, there are beautiful art pieces. But my favourite was a personal tribute to Lady Codder and her little dog. um, It was some kind of terrier. I can't remember what kind of terrier it was, but she'd had it for years and years and it died. And there was a wood carver working in the forest. One of her beloved redwood trees had fallen over. And rather than see anything going to waste, she was employing this wood carver to make a bench from it. And the bench on the back of the bench had all the animals of the forest, hedgehogs, rabbits, foxes. But as a surprise, the wood carver carved in her little dog into it. And I watched it over the weeks that I was going. I saw it develop and it's just absolutely beautiful. It's, it's a highlight. Yeah, and these wood carvings are fantastic and they really bring to life walkways and and gardens. But going back to Cotter Castle, Liz, the bit of art that I just love and I'll sit for hours watching it is the bird feeder in the formal garden. Yeah, just sit on the bench beside it and watch all of these myriad of different types of birds coming to the feeder. Absolutely beautiful. And she's not one to see anything go to waste. A few years ago, when she had to get a new roof of slate put onto Codger Castle, she used the old slate for another beautiful sculpture called Sun and Moon. And it's got water flowing over it and the noise just complements as you're wandering through the beautiful gardens. And one that I haven't seen, I don't know if you've been, Helen, but when the Dowager Countess of Codger uh, moves out, for the summer to allow the castle to be open to visitors. She moves to Ochendoon House and I hear that she has a beautiful garden here. It's a Tibetan garden and also her love of vegetable gardens as well. So you can go in on certain days of the year by prior appointment. So that's definitely on my bucket list. Oh, yes, yes. And talking of vegetable gardens, just along the road from Codder Castle at Fochabers, there is a beautiful walled garden in Gordon Castle. And that has just been brought back to life, really following the lines of the original, but it's been brought back to life and all the vegetables that are used in the walled garden cafe restaurant are brought from the garden. And again, looking down at aerial photographs show again this beautiful layout. It's again the almost the parterre. And of course, vegetable gardens are up in Inver U Gardens, Liz. 
that's a classic. You're talking about the northwest coast of Scotland and it's about the same latitude as central Russia. You wouldn't expect anything to be growing there. And you have palm trees and other exotic plants growing. That's all down to the Gulf Stream warming the waters around the coast of Scotland. Some fantastic plants there. But when Osgood Mackenzie sort of decided to plant his garden up there at Inverhue on the northwest of Scotland, I mean, I always admire anybody who can say, but I'll have to plant a shelter belt of trees first and allow them to grow up to shelter the land that I'm now going to plant my garden in. And that's going to take, what is it, about 15, 20 years, Liz, for a shelter belt to be worthwhile? It's planning ahead. And you think, gosh, I don't know if I'd have the patience to do that. And of course, um, Inverhue is owned by the National Trust, and the National Trust own many gardens across Scotland, some of them big, like Inverhue, very famous, others just small little retreats. And one of my favourites is Mullaney Gardens, which is at Balerno, just outside Edinburgh. It's only three acres, it's got a wall round about it, and then there's a decorated wrought iron gate, and you walk through this and you're just faced with this eruption of colour, sculpted beds and most famously roses. There's over 150 different varieties of roses. So as you walk in the scent in summer, you've got rose, you've got lavender, other beautiful scented plants. So it's just a little oasis. And one of the things that it's most famous for is it's got four beautifully manicured yew trees and they're called the Four Apostles and they're the last survivors of what were originally known as the Twelve Apostles. They're over 400 years old, because, of course, you is one of the longest living, um, not just plants, but living things. It grows for such a long period of time. Isn't the yew tree at Fortingall supposed to be the one that Pontius Pilate sort of recognised when he was over here? But that's a few years ago. <laughs> Again, it's a bit like the Douglas fir, though. It's, it's propped up quite uh, professionally. And the Burnham Oak, which is the one that was in the original Macbeth story. That's at Dunkeld. That's another one. Yeah, they're, they're surviving well. Talking about the National Trust of Scotland gardens, well, Arduini Gardens just south of Oban at, at Loch Melford, they're National Trust gardens and they are just beautiful. The first time I went there was about 30 years ago and they were not part of the National Trust for Scotland, I don't think, at that time. Uh, the people who owned them were still managing the gardens themselves and they were getting quite elderly but they were open to the public but you could see there was a lot needing done but there was amazing plants in it again going back to your roddies the rhododendrons there's lots and lots of them but now the, the national trust for scotland has it and it's really a beautiful garden to go into and the, the thing about it, it's not overcrowded because it's a little gem tucked away people go up to Inverhue, but the little gem just south of oban is every bit as nice and as you say, Helen, at this time of year, just coming towards the end of April, beginning of May, the rhododendrons and azaleas in Scotland are just phenomenal. I have to mention it, Liz. Outside Stirling, there's a, a little town called Bridge of Allen, and my parents moved there from Stirling in their retirement. And when you drive through Bridge of Allen up round the houses, you have big Victorian stone-built houses. The rhododendrons are just unbelievable. Every garden has big rhododendron plants and with all different colours, the pinks, the reds, the whites, they're just beautiful. 
And of course, we're talking about ornamental rhododendrons here because Scotland has a big problem. The most invasive plant species is rhododendron ponticus, which is the big purple flowered rhododendron, which is highly invasive. And although it looks beautiful when it's in bloom, the problem is that it takes over and it means that everything underneath it in the canopy below the plant is just wiped out. So it may look nice, but I'm afraid it's destroying all the natural biodiversity. So you can't plant them and you should be lifting them out. Yeah, and I think if they not got to be kind of burned on the spot, nothing moves with them. And it's a shame because I think if I had a, a driveway lined with that, I'd be very reluctant to take it all out because at this time of year, as you say, it's just stunning. A lot of the gardens are reconstructed so that they're the same as they would have been in previous centuries. So examples of that, Kouris Palace, the oh, yes. Outlander fans may well remember it because it was here that the, the episodes of Outlander, which featured Claire's Herb Garden, then they were filmed in the gardens of Kouris Palace. They're reconstructed as a 17th century period garden. Um, it's on several different levels overlooking the Forth. So from the top level, you get fantastic views over towards Edinburgh across the Firth of Forth. And there's herbs, there's fruit, vegetables, flowers. And wandering in amongst them, you've got a rare breed of hens called Scots Dumpy Hens. And it's lovely to see. And I think what I like about the garden at Kouris is that they've got the flowers growing alongside the vegetables and the hens are scratching in amongst it all. It's just so very natural. And that cockerel, oh my goodness, can that cockerel crow? Oh, yes. <laughs> it's beautiful at Kouris and because of its south facing, you would think that nothing could be growing on Firth of Forth because it's very windy as well. But the walls at sort of the back of the garden heat up and so they can have peaches and grapes and all sorts growing along there. Just gives us an idea of what life was like in the 17th century. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that, Helen, but all over Scotland, you have gardens like that where the wall is warmed. I think down at Abbotsford, at Sir Walter Scott's home in Abbotsford, they've got fruit trees attached to the wall for the warmth. And the most famous of all, the pineapple, not far from here at Dunmore. That was where the first pineapples were grown indoors, but they've got a beautiful wall that's got all the fruit bushes. And um, there's a name for it, and I can't remember the name when they, they connect them to the wall and make them grow sideways. What's the word for that? Ballier. That's that's what it is, Helen. That's the word. So again, beautiful crops of fruit. And some of these walls, and I think Dunmore is one, and I think the Abbotsford one as well, is they were double-skinned walls and they actually lit a fire. The heat of the fire heated through the, the channel between the two walls and that gave extra heat to allow the, the exotic fruits to grow. Yeah. That was certainly, it was like a sort of first orangery or whatever, where yeah. they would have special rooms with the walls heated like that. Yeah, that was how they grew the pineapples. So yeah, Countess of Dunmore has featured in previous episodes. But another one that's of a similar ilk, and that's Dunbar's Close, which is just off Edinburgh's Royal Mile. You wouldn't expect to find a little hidden gem down a narrow cobbled close. But what I find amazing about Dunbar Close is when you go in, now any of you who've been to Edinburgh and down the Royal Mile and the Cannon Gate, you've got narrow pavements, lots of people, lots of traffic and noise. But you just turn in to this close and it's as if you go into a soundproof room. It's just quiet and peaceful. And then you've got the little herb garden to start with, isn't it? And then you go down into layers of beautiful gardens. 
Yep, there's eight distinct sections and they're called knot gardens. Again, it's parterre gardens with little clipped hedges separating off the different ones. And again, little seating areas where you can just sit and relax. And best of all, for most of these gardens, the magic word to the Scots is... It's free! free. Yep. So all the botanic gardens and the bars close and a lot of these that we've been talking about are free. The National Trust for Scotland, you have to pay to go into them. And the gardens attached to the castles like Codder Castle, Dunrobin Castle. Once you're in the castle, you don't just look at the castle. You've got all this free garden space and woodland space that you can spend a whole day with no bother at all in there. And also we've got Scotland's Garden Scheme where people open their own private gardens to the public on certain days of the year. I love that. I love just to see what people themselves can do, not professional gardeners, but just doing it for the passion and and love and just the fact that they've got green fingers and are able to do it. Now, Liz and I both live in the same village and just across the glen, we've got Kirkland's House and they open in the Scottish Garden Scheme. And over the 30 years I've been here, I have just loved watching the way that garden has been developed just over the years bit by bit they have reclaimed what was very overgrown gardens and got the terraced garden back just beautiful and you're wandering down and you see the gentleman Peter Hart working in his garden he loves to talk and explain what's growing there and whatever in fact that might be a feature for a future episode we might get him I've spoken to him before about doing an interview and one of the things that his particular passion snowdrops And we've just come through between the end of January and the beginning of March, the period of snowdrops in Scotland. We seem to have a cycle. We go through snowdrops and then daffodils, primroses onto the bluebells. It's just a wonderful time of year in Scotland. And at this time of year, there's many snowdrop trails across Scotland. They're offering it virtually this year. They're doing events online so that you can still get your fill from all the beautiful snowdrops that, what is it, they're galanthophiles. You know, they grow very well in Scotland, but possibly the most famous of them all is Campbell, which is near St Andrews. And again, you get self-guided walks and you can buy the different varieties. Yes, I noticed this year that Peter Hart, because the gardens could not be open for their normal snowdrop visits, they actually left clumps of snowdrop bulbs on the steps outside the graveyard beside them near their house for people just to go and pick up. I missed that, Helen. How could I have missed something that was free? I think they said been clearing out and they put clumps of snowdrop bulbs on the steps of the old graveyard. Wonderful, because of course you have to keep splitting them so that they remain healthy and keep on spreading. Yeah, I mean, the Glen, which Helen's referring to, is just on our doorstep, a popular circular walk. And through the next few weeks, it just goes through the cycle of wild garlic, wooden enemy. It's just a beautiful place to wander. So wildflowers, as well as formal gardens, you are spoilt for choice. And then you have the Macher, which is up on the islands, the area between the land and the sea on the sand dunes, which is just a riot of wildflowers. Just beautiful. And I want to mention one that is just on the border. We've mentioned sculptures and things in Codra Castle Gardens, but just outside Edinburgh, there's the most magnificent place called Jupiter Artland. And basically it was a family home of Robert and Nicky Wilson. And they started collecting art for their garden and grounds not too long ago, 2004. And one of the first people that they invited to look at their grounds to see what art was the famous landscape architect Charles Jenks, who has got beautiful things. And he has created 
a huge landscape project called Cells of Life. And you can walk around it, you can walk up round the... It's like a, if you think of a walnut whirl or a Mr Whippy ice cream, that's how the gardens are landscaped. And they don't just say, oh, we'll have that, we'll put it in the garden. They invite the artists that they may commission to do some art to come and live in the grounds, in the house with them so that they can get a feel of what they're trying to create. And, you know, we went there just for an afternoon, but honestly, it's a place you could spend a whole day. There's woodlands, there's, there's, as I say, these wonderful landscapes, but art round every corner, little sculptures of children playing in the woods, big Anthony Gormley sculptures, just you come round a corner, there's an Anthony Gormley sculpture, a huge iris is there sculpted. It is just a beautiful place to go. There's one that really quite takes your breath back. It's called Landscape and Gun and Tree. And it's reminding us of the human presence and the power of land ownership and the brooding latent violence of a cocked shotgun. And you don't see it because it's so big. The butt looks like part of the tree. And it's only when you look up, you follow it up and you see it actually is a shotgun. It's stunning. I'm just thinking there are so many topics here for future episodes. We've got the oh, plant yes. hunters. We've got Andrew Gormley. Oh, my goodness. We'll be going until, I, I don't know, certainly yeah. well beyond <laughs> this lockdown, hopefully, anyway. But, of course, you know, as we're talking about all these gardens and botanic gardens, etc., what else have they got there? They've got beautiful tea rooms and gift shops, which brings us back to the topic of tea. Everything stops for tea. Everything stops for tea. So hopefully we've given people some food for thought there and perhaps this could make a good virtual tour where we can actually show you pictures as well. So maybe something for a bit further down the line. I think that'd be a really nice idea, Liz. And with your expertise, knowledge and love, be perfect for you. Excellent. Right. Well, that brings us to word of the week. Helen, what's your word of the week? Well, my word of the week is Roan, R-O-N-E. Sometimes spelled R O A N. And a roan is the guttering, the horizontal guttering along a shed, a house, or something. And normally it leads down into a water butt, a barrel. And that water would be used to water the gardens. So it's the rainwater off the roof of the shed, the summer house, the house, leading off through a roan into a barrel to water the gardens. Very ecologically friendly. Well done. Well, my word of the week is satutary. Oh, <laughs> Have you got a satutary, Helen? I have got a satutary. I suppose you could, you're my summer house. The top could be a satutary. Yeah, most people have got one. A satutary is a secluded area where you can just sit yourself apart from other people and just sit and watch the world go by. It can be inside, like a wee conservatory or something in your house, but usually it's a satutary outside and it's some sort of summer house or gazebo or just a little cosy corner of the garden. A wee satutary. And of course, they have been so welcome during this COVID lockdown when we can only meet up with friends and families in small numbers, but outside. So situtaries have become very, very popular. Hopefully not for too much longer. But thanks for listening today. And thank you, Liz. And uh, we hope that you'll enjoy this episode. And just before we go, just a little mention that on Thursday, the 8th of April, Liz is doing a, a virtual tour of Sky, the Misty Island. So if you want further details, you'll find that on our social media. Or contact us at scottishbletherspodcast at gmail.com. 
we'll see you next week. If we don't see you through the week, we'll see you through the window. Bye. Bye for now. And there we have it, the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.